dad. It's been it's been a process. Mm-hmm. It's been a little uh, a little harder than I thought. I've had a lot of anxiety sitting down with different people. I think we have some of the same exact things that put us right. over the edge, and I right. found myself getting incredibly emotional. And I think that for me, with our case being so public, um, I feel really lucky. I feel lucky that people get to see and witness you the way that I have been able to see you my whole life, um, that people see you as passionate, dedicated, and fiercely loyal to their family, that you have been um, a pillar of strength. We both know that's not true. No, (laughs) I'm not a pillar of strength. Strength doesn't mean that you don't have vulnerabilities. You were willing to let people see you cry, that you were willing to let people see your anger, that you were willing to let people help you and to share in the grief. That to me is strong. You were, you were, I don't mean this mainly, you're broken, like your world shattered and the whole world witnessed that. I'm also so grateful that people get to see you and Ron for being these amazing people that I got to grow up with and that I got to be impacted by and other people got to learn from. I get people all the time that tell me, I, I, wish, I, I wish I had a dad like that or I wish that my sibling was as loyal to me as you were to Ron. My pride for you and for Ron It's endured with you. I want the world to know how proud I am of you. This is Confronting O.J. Simpson. I'm your host, Kim Goldman. So, Kim, what did you learn from this podcast? I learned that I'm right where I'm supposed to be. I'm right where I'm supposed to be with my grief, with my understanding, with my curiosity, with my resiliency. I'm different than I was yesterday, and I'm different than where I'll be tomorrow, because I feel very strongly that if I'm always being honest with myself and my journey, that it's evolving. I learned that I'm capable of handling difficult crap. My brother's loss was the most difficult thing for me to face. Going back and discussing it gave me pause about some things um, as it related to evidence, as it related to the jury, as it related to feelings that Marsha's carried with her, Chris has carried, the jurors have carried. I mean, I think it gave me some understanding and appreciation for how it impacted other people, which was always important to me. I had someone recently tweet at me that I let Lionel Cryer, one of the jurors, off the hook, um, and I let him redeem himself. And I really sat with that for a couple minutes because I don't think it was my job to provide a space for it to be a confessional. It wasn't about Lionel Cryer. That space that I had with him was about me and understanding why he came to the resolution that he did. I still don't respect it. I still don't appreciate it. I also it. don't think you let him off the hook. You <laughs> let him speak, and I think anyone listening will come to their own conclusion. Well, we all thought that for you, this would be an experience where you would find answers. But what was amazing was the people you talked to 
financiers. Right. You know, David Aldana, the juror who is still convinced that O.J. Simpson is not guilty. Right. Joe Shively, the witness who almost got into an accident with Simpson, she was afraid to meet with you. And for her, this was cathartic. And and we talked about this before we started, the concept of confronting. Um, I think that it immediately gives this connotation that it's going to be confrontational, which was never our desire. That that isn't part of my makeup. For the purpose of this podcast, it really was understanding what needed to be understood. From the beginning, I wanted it to be organic and I wanted to let it unfold. And I think that's what we did. And I've learned that I'm good in that space. Which interview will stick with you, you think, the most? I think that Tom Lang's interview stuck out to me in a big way because of his feelings that everything should have been put in, regardless of whether or not it would have held up under cross-examination. Yeah, he went down a list of evidence that made you have a stomachache. And that was hard to set the stage for the entire show. And again, I think what was interesting is that sometimes I was left with questions and I'm like, wait, what do I do with this? And then as the conversations continued, all the questions I had building up about Jill Shively and about Cato and about Tom Lang's listing of evidence, when you get to the moment that the jury spoke and that the jury shared their feelings about the acquittal, it really did sum up my feeling, which was that none of it would have mattered. The jury conversations were hard. And I was probably the most nervous about those. But talking to my dad is hard. Talking to the domestic violence expert who shared statistics about how many women don't leave was hard. So when you ask me about which interview stuck with me, which conversation, they all do. They all serve their purpose. The conversations with my brother's friends, probably my favorite, hearing them recall him as a young man. I think that there are moments in every single conversation that will stay with me and have left an indelible impression. So you said from the beginning... You wanted to speak to someone who understands grief and loss, someone who's actually made it their life's work. You know, over the course of the last 25 years, I've met some incredible people and they listen and they care. They speak from their heart and they speak from their soul. And David Kessler is one of those people who um, he just gets it. And I was really lucky to have the chance to talk to him. So I'm on my way to talk with David Kessler today. He's a grief expert. He is a co-author of a book on the five stages of grief. I'm also really curious about his belief system around closure and moving on. It's sometimes hard for me to explain to others the concept of closure. and why it doesn't exist for me, and why I'm totally okay with that, uh, and how you can not have quote-unquote closure in your life and still be a functioning human being. I want to talk about forgiveness, lack of forgiveness. Anyway, I think it's going to be great, and I'm looking forward to speaking with him. I'm excited. Oh, David! Hi! Hi! Okay, you good? You need coffee? I'm good. Water? No, I'm okay. Restroom, you're good? I think I'm all right right now. Okay. You wrote this book with Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Five stages of grief. They are things that we have seen happen in people, and we all go through them many times. And there is this pattern of disbelief that sets in. There is this anger that can happen. There is this bargaining. 
And all of our grief is so unique because all of our relationships are so unique. Right. And you know, when you talk about your experience and you talk about the grief being there with you always, I think of grief as part of the love for Ron. Yeah. It's not going away. One of the biggest questions I get asked is, how long are they going to grieve? How long, you know, am I going to grieve? And my answer is always, well, how long are they going to be dead? Right. Because if they're going to be dead a long time, you're going to grieve a long time. It's the getting over it. It's the moving on that frustrates me. And I always say, I don't, I'm not moving on. I, I, it's not like I'm going to put it behind me and I'm going to move. I'm, I'm moving forward. There's not a moving on. There's not a recovery. There's not a getting over. And the big thing I'm a stickler about is there is no closure. Oh, thank you. Thank I, you. A couple of things happen when people want people in grief to find closure. One, your grief is making me uncomfortable. So if you could find closure, I could be so much more at ease. Right, right. And the other thing is they want people to find peace and they don't understand that it's not going away. Right. And I think they don't understand that you can feel sadness and loss and grief and still be a functioning human being. Correct. My relationship with my brother put my grief and loss into a place because we were so super tight. And so people that, like you said, they want to make themselves feel better. And so they try to say these these perfect phrases and and... Over the years, I've stopped trying to argue, and now I'm trying to educate. First of all, I think you have such an important voice. You are the voice of siblings, and I think sibling grief gets missed so often. Yeah. I mean, no one knows what it's like to be you or me or anyone else. Right. Grief is a no-judgment zone. Ask me how I cope. Rather than tell me what I you think I'm not doing right, ask right. me what I'm doing. Right. I think I'm doing okay. Right. And maybe tomorrow I'm going to have a different feeling about how I'm doing because it's a different day and different feelings come up on different day. But ask me how I'm coping. And if you get sad, whatever feeling you may have that's on that, quote, dark spectrum that way, you know, right. the, the downside of things, why would we dive into that? And then when you're joyous, not go, well, get over that joy. They're both experiences of life. I didn't get to grieve right away right. because we moved very quickly from the murder to everything being on television and in the courtroom. And then we moved quickly from that trial to the second trial. And and there was just people around all the time and there was just cameras on all the time. And then when everybody went away, then I was like, oh, well, this is what this feels like. Because I had been able to kind of mask it because I, I had to get up and go to court. I had to get up and do certain things. That was my job. That sounds like healthy delayed grief. You had to delay it with everything. I mean, you can't do what you needed to do and feel everything that could be felt. So of course you would feel it later. Makes perfect sense. In some ways, I feel like I cheated my brother out of feeling the loss for him. I mean, I had a lot of guilt about that for a long time. Right. I can understand how you would feel that way but you were doing what was required in the moment for your brother. Sitting alone on a mountaintop crying for him would have been very present with your grief, but that wasn't what was required of you in the moment. And what was required of you was a thousand times more uncomfortable than sitting on a mountaintop with grief. 
that was being present for him. I struggled with all the should-haves and the would-haves and the supposed-to-bes. I have a new book that I just finished, and part of what I talk about in there is the one-year myth. Yeah. That one year, we should all be done. And there's nothing true about that. A long time ago, I wrote like a like a top 10 list of things to not say right. um, to someone in grief. It's all part of God's plan. Right. You can have more kids. You have other siblings, which I don't. You'll get over it um, all in due time. Um, gets easier with time. Right. You're that. only given what you could handle, yeah, God, yeah, right? Yeah. Just because I'm grieving doesn't mean I can't giggle. Doesn't mean I can't laugh. Doesn't mean I can't enjoy life. I just have always said that for me, my life is like a Sunday just without the cherry on top. I can have great things happen, but right. it's bittersweet because I, right. I'm not experiencing it right. with my best friend. And all of these moments that I'm having, he didn't get to have. Do you think that having that belief doesn't allow you to then experience what true or pure joy could be? No, I actually think the opposite. When your bandwidth has been stretched to just a hideous place of sadness, of grief, you have that same opposite bandwidth of joy. People who have had great grief are actually capable of really great joy. I think we appreciate it more. I think we appreciate it more. run a business and I've been having to hire people for so many years and I know it's a challenge, but I've learned that there's only one place that you can go where hiring is simple, it's fast, and it's smart. It's a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates and that place is ZipRecruiter.com. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. With this powerful matching technology, they'll scan thousands and thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the very first day. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive website. Ready? ZipRecruiter.com slash confronting. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash confronting. C-O-N-F-R-O-N-T-I-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash confronting. ZipRecruiter the smartest way to hire. Anybody that knows me knows that I am crazy about making sure that my safety is a priority as well as my son's. So our house is always locked. Our windows are locked. Our doors are locked. The alarm is always on. So I am right up with a majority of Americans around the country that worry more about burglary than almost any other crime, according to a recent survey. But I was also surprised that what's crazy is that only one in five homes even have security. Maybe it's because most companies don't really make it that easy for you. I know it wasn't for me a long time ago. So that's why Simply Safe is my top choice. Simply Safe protects your whole home, every window, room, and door with 24 7 monitoring for just a fraction of the cost. That's because there's no contract. 
No hidden fees, no fine print. It's designed to blend right into your home, no wires and no drilling. And the police dispatch is up to three times faster because they use video verification. So visit Simply Safe today. Go to simplysafe.com slash confronting. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose, so go now. And be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash confronting so they know that our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash confronting. I had a really hard time, my dad and I both, with being around my brother's friends as they were moving through their life, getting married, having kids. It was very difficult for us. Does that happen a lot? It does, and I think it's worse now with social media. When a child dies, a brother dies, a loved one dies, there's milestones. All their friends are getting married. You know, someone's becoming a parent. You're like, oh, he's never going to have this. And I remember Chris Darden and I, his brother died. And I remember we were talking on the phone and he said that he wishes that he had my loss the way that my brother died in the sense that it was quick because his brother died of an illness and how hard that was to watch his brother die and him not be able to help. And I was like, oh my God, what I wouldn't give to be able to say goodbye. And so here we were comparing and wishing right. that we had the other one, you know, and it was just this weird conversation and that we were And people realize that like our mind even does the grass is greener yes. in grief. A hundred percent. And so, you know, I have friends that they'll tell me, I mean, I have a girlfriend, her father was dying and they all got to stand around. And when she was telling me this beautiful story, Story about her, how her father passed away. I, she's just so peaceful with it. And I'm like, I'm so envious. And one of the things that I talk to people about is jealousy is such a normal emotion in grief. My, I have three of my very best friends are very close with their brothers. And it, it's just, it's like bittersweet. It's this weird feeling that I'm, I'm so envious. How could you not be? I know. How could you not be? It's hard to understand why. Why are you here and not him? Well, why do bad things happen? Why do some people in this world get five years and others get a hundred? I don't know why this planet is set up that way. I don't know why people do everything right and die and horrible people can do everything wrong and live. I mean, I don't get it. That just is. And one of the things I teach and one of the things I work with is pain from loss is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Mm. Pain is the pure pain we feel of someone dying. Suffering is what our crazy mind can do. And our crazy mind, you would think after it has a loss, it would go, wow, you've had a horrible loss. I'm going to be really kind and loving. But our mind can give us survivor's guilt and blame us and blame other people. I mean, I think on some level, our mind can't comprehend death without a reason. And there has to be someone to blame. It's often ourselves or the survivor's guilt that we turn on ourselves. So part of my work is I can't take away your pain. Your pain's part of the love. I want to give you the dignity of your pain. The suffering, what your mind is doing to you is the place I can help ease it. And it's challenging. How long does someone stay in the suffering stage? You know, because I feel like sometimes I'm suffering because some days are just harder than others. And I'm a parent now and I have my son and there are moments where I 
I see my son walk by and I see my brother like it's trippy. How does that happen? You know, he never met my brother and how can he have those mannerisms and how can I look at his eyes sometimes and think, oh my gosh, I'm looking like, and it fucks with me, you know, because I'm moving along and I'm having a good day and then whammo, I'm just crushed. You know, and I think that like when you say suffering's optional, it's like sometimes I just, I want to feel that because it makes me feel close to my brother. When you authentically see a glimpse of your brother in your son, to me, that's not suffering. That's the memories. That's the pure love. There's nothing I would say about that that's suffering. Suffering would be if you're just sitting around having a good day and your mind turns on you and starts chattering and stuff, and there's been no trigger. There's been nothing outward, and your mind just starts being cruel to you. That's the suffering I'm talking about. My son, interestingly, feels a closeness to my brother, having never met him. And sometimes I worry that I've put too much on him, and I don't know if there's too much, but I I talk about him freely in the house, and Uncle Ron, and there's a picture in his room, and... You know, when we go to the cemetery, he comes and he writes his own notes to him. I mean, my son's 15 now, but from the time he was little, you know, he'd always write his own notes. I love you. I miss you. You know, and then as he's gotten older, it's like, I wish I would have met you. But he feels this closeness to him. I struggled for a long time thinking that I was imposing my grief on my kid because he was feeling all this emotion around it, having never met this person. And I think, and we talked a little bit about like why he finally said, well, it's your brother. And I was just thankful because I don't have anybody else to share stuff with. Like my dad and I, sometimes we resist sometimes telling each other that we're still hurting and that we're still sad because we don't want to burden the other one with our feelings. Um, You know, I'm like, dad, you're the only one that gets this. I can't not share this with you. And he's like, well, I don't want to put my stuff on you because I'm the dad and I'm supposed to. Right. And that took a lot of working through. First of all, It's just so beautiful. And I think about one of the concepts is grief must be witnessed because the love needs to be witnessed. Your grief and your loss obviously has so many crazy, horrendous moving parts Mm -hmm. in the world. And the idea that your son could bring it to its purest moment because he's your brother. At the end of the day, your son saw the most basic part of all this. He saw Ron, your brother. You've been teaching him more about love than about grief. And the other thing you've been teaching is it's very easy to love people in their presence. How do we love them in their absence? And you've helped Sam know how to love in the absence. And I think that's really beautiful. I'm grateful. Um, I'm grateful for that. Um, and then it also makes me super sad that they never got to know each other. Right. We don't just grieve for the person who died. Yeah. We grieve for the future that will never be that that other road. Yeah. We thought we were going to have in life. People. It's funny you say that. People would always say um, to me. Ron wouldn't want this. You know, Ron wouldn't want this of you. And I said, you know what? Ron and I never had a conversation that if one of us should get slaughtered in our 20s, how we should move on. Like, we never had this conversation. So I don't know what the fuck my brother would want. Think about what you're saying. I'm like, I appreciate what you're saying. But the words sometimes can be so 
hurtful. And I, and I know what you're saying. They don't intend it to be. But if I don't try to course correct a little bit, I don't want other people to continue them perpetuating this feeling. I want to try to stop them and, and try to educate them on, hey, you, you could say it a different way. Or I understand you're, what you're wanting to say, but the way it's making me feel. Right. People in grief are teachers. Yeah. I have, um, so I don't like the word anniversary. I say thaniversary. You ever heard that? No, what's that? Thano means death. Okay. So it's the thaniversary. Oh. Because I think an anniversary you want to celebrate. celebrate. I don't want to celebrate, but it's a thaniversary. The days up to it, I start feeling something, and, I, and I'm and i very aware, and I, I usually don't try not to bring anybody else in. And then on June 12th, I'm a hot mess, and my body just naturally starts to shut down at certain times because as it, as the day gets longer and I know it gets time to when he went to work and when he got off of work and when he got home and when he changed and when he went to bre- like I feel all of it when this happened in your world and for your first probably 10 15 20 years of this there wasn't a lot of research about that we know what you're describing now is real yeah. and lives in your body. Yeah. And we know for us to go, oh, let's take her out and let's pretend this is just a Tuesday. That isn't going to work. Yeah. Your body's going to say, it's not just another Tuesday. Right. It's going to suck. We just <laughs> have to normalize it. Right. Can you just let the day suck? And are you every other day struggling with it, trying <laughs> right. to manage, trying to find a smile, trying to find the joy, trying to be, I mean, every other day, aren't you doing that? Right. Can you have one day where you're like, it wins. Yeah. The grief is here. It's it's just, this This is the day that, you know, Yeah. I'm filled to hear. And I only knew how to do that as I've gone through it. I used to apologize a lot for feeling right. what I felt. And for not being present and wanting to just shut down. And I've stopped apologizing and right. I and I own it. And that's been so liberating. And I think it's also been freeing for my friends because it kind of lets them off the hook too. Absolutely. And you, it is so public. And I did a talk a few months ago in New York and there were a few families there from 9-11. Hmm. I, I said to them, what are you looking for? They said, let's just tell you about what our days are like on 9-11. Mm-hmm. Everyone's calling. Everyone's saying, he's on the news. Did you see his picture? Did you do this? And we have spent years entertaining and trying to make people comfortable and responding to you. And they're like, we don't want to deal with the outside world anymore on that day. We want it to be our day. Do you have people that have had loss like mine where it was been a murder and the person has either been in prison or acquitted and they're walking free that the person's wanted to go and talk to the person that killed their? Yeah, so let's talk about that. So first of all, I always remind people we have a legal system, not a justice system. Mm-hmm. I don't. I feel yeah. silly saying no, no, that in no. front of you it's because right. you, not just for me. you know that more than anyone in the universe. And uh, there is a another kind of hell that I think people who have had someone murdered experience. You know, one of the things I tell people all the time is I'll go, oh, well, their loved one was in the wrong place at the wrong... And I'm like, no, no, no. The murderer was in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing. Right. They were just living their life. Right. There is no blaming the victim here. So 
Forgiveness is something that comes up a lot and it's mm-hmm. very trendy. Yeah. Let's get everyone to forgive. You know, there might be some things that are harder to forgive. I think forgiveness is a very personal thing. I'm so okay with not forgiving the killer that stabbed my brother to death. And I I wish people could just let me be okay in that because it's unforgivable. For me, A, he's not asking for forgiveness and B, I, I don't need to give that away. Like, why do I have to do that? Why do I have to do all that work? You know, and they said, well, the forgiveness is more for you than for him. I'm like, but I'm okay. Everyone has to find where they are in that. Just like closure. Putting closure or forgiveness as something is on your to-do list is a ridiculous thing. I mean, if you've happened to have had a brother murdered, you know, in the same way, then maybe there's a discussion. But if you're just on the sideline telling someone to find closure and find forgiveness, whatever. Besides the concept of closure and forgiveness, are there other misconceptions that people have about grief? I would tell people we're not meant to be islands of grief. Connections are so important to witness each other's grief, not to try to change it, not to try to fix it, to be with it, and to realize that grief is part of the love. When you see someone grieving, it means you're seeing someone dealing with love. I see pain, but I also see love for Ron. Mm -hmm. Why would that go away? Why would I ever want that to go away for you? Right. So to understand that you may not get it, you may not understand Kim's reactions or my reactions or your best friend or your neighbor. And the reality is you're probably someday going to understand it a little more. There just is no right way to do this and everyone does it so differently. And I think that's what this whole process has been about. You know, like I've already felt what I believe is the worst pain. And I'm so much stronger and I'm really proud of the fact that I'm standing and I can face the world. Right. I don't know that 10 years ago I would have been able to say that, but today I'm feeling like, okay, I think, I think. And if not, I, I know I, I know I have my tribe. For a very long time, I was, I was Fred's daughter and I was Ron's sister and I was Sam's mom. In the last five, six years, I've kind of emerged as Kim and it's been nice And at the end of the day, you, Kim, are the evidence that Ron lived. You are the living, breathing evidence that he was here. Your father is the evidence that he was here. And so is your son. Yeah. And to me, that's that's the legacy of all this. And and you embody, I'm sure, the best of him. By the way, I love your heart. I feel the tenderness and sweetness of your heart connects me to Ron. I, I get to know Ron a little bit through you. Thank you.
I'm a single mom and I run a business and I'm doing this podcast and I volunteer and my life is incredibly busy. So the last thing that I want to do is find insurance. And I have needs that require a lot of time and energy to be put into finding the exact right policy for me. So what I've learned is Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all of the paperwork and red tape. There's no sales pressure, there's no hidden fees, just financial protection and peace of mind. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy, they can also help you find home insurance, auto insurance, pet insurance, any kind of insurance you need, they've got your back. So if you need life insurance, but you just don't want to deal with all the legwork, head to policygenius.com. It's the easy way to compare all the top insurers and find the best value for you. Policy Genius, delegate what you hate, especially if you hate getting life insurance. Kim, are there any other thoughts about Ron you'd like to share? You know, this process made me miss him more. Um, And I don't mean that to say I didn't miss him a lot before, but I think um, every day there's a moment that I feel like I want to share something with him or that I want to talk to him or I want to run something by him because he was my touchstone. And that has been hard because I, I wonder what he would say and I wonder how he would comfort me. I wonder how he would encourage me to keep going or if he would tell me to stop. So it's not the memories of him. It's the longing for him that I think um, has stayed with me all of these years. And I don't ever anticipate that going away. And I, I'm learning to live with that. And every day is different. Um, I, I keep my brother's ring and I keep my brother's necklace close to me because it, it connects me to him. Um, I have two tattoos that are symbolic of my relationship with my brother and, and what he's taught me. I have pictures of him in my home. I talk about him as much as I can. Um, I need to keep him close because he was the closest thing to me. And so um, there's just no bow to put on that. Those are just my feelings. It's overwhelming. I admire you so much for having done this and for seeking answers. Thank you for giving me the space to do that and for um, staying true to your promise that this would be my journey and that um, that you would honor my commitment to my brother and my family. You have been nothing short of uh, honorable. Well, you know how overbearing I can be. <laughs> no, I've never back. experienced that at all. <laughs> well, I can be, I think. But um, I can't believe we're sitting here crying. <laughs> oh, my God. So several months ago, when we first started, you and your father, Fred, shared with us some wonderful stories about Ron. And you were going through the garage at your house and looking at pictures. And you also told us about Ron's answering machine. I want to go back to that moment. Do you remember when we were going through Ron's apartment and found those messages on his answering machine? of the messages that went from, hey, Ron, just want to say hi, don't forget we're getting together today. And then slowly, as you heard them, Mm -hmm. went from, hey, Ron, I wanted to talk to you. I keep hearing your name today, and I want to be sure it's not you. I wanted to be sure you're okay. (laughs) 
to almost the equivalent of, Ron, I now know it's you. I wanted to hear your voice. I wanted to hear your voice one more time. And I love it. That series of messages on his answering machine were so telling of how people felt about Ron. God knows how many people had called on that on that message machine. Ugh. You kept those messages. Why? We kept them because those were the last few things that connected us to Ron. Um, you know, keeping his plates or his, you know, silverware or, you know, items from his home, um, you know, those didn't seem as important. Um, so keeping the messages for the people that reached out to him and that were connected to him and that were concerned about him, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Will you share them with us? Yeah, they're hard to listen to. This is for you, Ron. I will always love you. This is Ron. I've stepped out. You can page me at 888-5241. Thanks. Ron, Ron, Ron. Run, 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 run. Hey, Bonehead. It's almost 10 o'clock. I'm debating whether I'm just going to head on over to your house or not. I want to get moving here. I'll probably give it about 10, 15 more minutes. Call me later. Hey, Ron, what's up? It's Eric. It's 20 after 10. Wake up. Run. You bomb! What are you doing? Oh man, I'm just gonna finish watching the show, then I'll probably head over. Call me later. Hey Ron, it's Stuart. It's about 10:45. I was just curious if you wanted to come to work today, so uh, talk to you later. Bye. Ron, it's Patty. I just talked to Jeff. Um, I, 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 um. I need to talk to you, and I'm not sure if what I'm hearing is right. Um, I don't know if they're playing a joke because he has the car and the keys and everything. But um, call me. I'm going to try paging you. Ron, this is Jeffrey. You're dead, man. You hear me from upstairs. I love you, man. Just heard on the news right now. Fingers across, and I'm hoping it's not you. Rumors going around town like fast wildfire. <sighs> Trying to get a hold of your parents. Love you, man. Take care. Hey, Ron. This is uh, Todd calling. How you doing? I hope you're doing well because uh, I was watching the news and they said they found uh, found somebody uh, dead named Ron Goldman over in Brentwood on Bundy. And I'm just like, fuck, I hope it's not you, so I hope it's not you. And if you feel like calling me back, let me know you're okay. I uh, hope you're still alive and doing well, man. Later. Hey, Ronnie. This is Dave. Um, I don't know if you're going to ever get this or not. Oh, man. Please call me. Let me know uh, what's going on. If 
just a name as a coincidence or if it is not, obviously. Hi, Trish. Um, I was just calling you back, and I just wanted to see if you're okay. Uh, give me a call back. Or I'll pay you. Okay, bye. Hi, Ryan. This is Carly. Um, uh, can you call me? Uh, we heard something on the news. I just want to make sure it's not you. Um, call me. Bye. As soon as possible. Anytime tonight. Okay? Bye. Mom, this is Kimberly. It's, uh... Monday night. I haven't talked to you in a while. Um, Heather Burke was just called me and said something happened to you. If, if something didn't happen to you, please call me back. I need to talk to you. Bye. Hey, Ron. Uh, just running to your voice one more time. And uh, hope everything works out for you. Um, goodbye, Ron. Hey, Confronting listeners, this isn't the end of season one. Please check back for additional bonus episodes, including one that drops next week, featuring a member of the defense team. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at at ConfrontingPod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussions from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever platform you listen to podcasts. Thank you for going on this journey with me. We'd also like to learn more about you, so please complete a short survey at wondery.com survey. That's wondery.com survey. You'll have an opportunity to tell us what you like about the show and what you'd love to hear in future episodes. Confronting O.J. Simpson is executive produced by me, Kim Goldman, and my co-host, Nancy Glass. Along with executive producers, Ben Fetterman and Andrea Gunning, supervising producer, Carrie Hartman. Produced by Julie Clark and Chris O'Ryan. Story producer, Tony Davis. Audio editing done by lead editor, Matt Delvecchio, and editor, Dean Welsh. The archive, research, and production team includes Jamie Richard, Megan Paisley, Jessica Little, and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kenny Kohler and Mark Downing. Bart McCatchy was the post-supervising producer. Audio mix done by Dave Saya, assisted by Dale Epperson. Music and original composition created by Mybit Music. And special thanks to Laurent Joven at Migrate Sound. Confronting O.J. Simpson was produced by Glass Entertainment Group in partnership with Wondery. Wondery.